Good morning, guys. Welcome back to those Murder Girls podcast. I'm Marie. This is Raina. We have some shout outs this morning because we're feeling really fucking thankful for you guys. <laughs> we want to shout out Jesus M, Nikki R, Grace H, Laura L, Stephanie Q, and B. Yeah. Candace F, Liz P, Tyrone L, Ashley S, Jamie L, Ida R. And Sonia B. You guys are just the freaking best. Seriously, we guys love you so much. We love knowing that all of you guys are listening and sharing and supporting us in pretty much every way possible. Seriously, you guys are amazing. <laughs> so really quick, what the hell with this time change? Oh my gosh, is it really necessary? Like, can we just, I can't acclimate to the schedule. And by the time I do, we fall back. So it's like, hey, California, <laughs> be more like Arizona. I prefer to fall back. I look forward to that extra hour and then springing ahead. I feel like it messes me up for like the first at least couple weeks. And then I'm like, all right. Like a serious six months for me. <sighs> yeah. But I like that it's later, lighter, later. later. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. All right. So today's case, you guys, the inspiration behind choosing this one actually came from one of our favorite podcasts that we listen to regularly called Best Case, Worst Case. If you guys have never heard of this podcast, you have to subscribe right now. The podcast is a true behind-the-scenes look and deep dive in to real cases that take place all across the country told by law enforcement officers and people who worked with them. So the podcast is a Wondery and Empire Studios production. It features Francie Hakes, who is a former U.S. federal prosecutor, and Jim Clemente, who's a retired special agent and criminal profiler, who also writes and produces the TV show Criminal Minds. Which is Marie's favorite, like one of my top favorite shows. Really? You want to know what? I've never watched it. It's totally on my to-do list. Oh, I love it. I just don't like... I know that it's based on like facts Mm -hmm. and things, but it just has to be like real. Like, I don't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, so Francie and Jim, they deep dive into cases that all of us are familiar with, like Jeffrey, sick fuck Epstein. And then they go into cases that have like little to no coverage, like our case today. So you guys check them out. So before we start our case today, we do want to introduce you guys to a few key players in today's story, just so we don't take away from the subject and we can also give them a proper introduction. So Cheryl McCollum is a crime analyst and Cheryl was a guest on Best Case, Worst Case, introducing the case that we're going to talk about with you guys today. She's also a college professor. She's an author. And she's the founder and acting director of a nonprofit. It's called Cold Case Investigative Research Institute. Which I'm going to link in the notes of this um, episode because you guys have to check it out. Her work is amazing. It's fantastic. She wrote a book called Cold Case Pathways to Justice. I'm sure she was, you know, amongst many other things. But don't get it twisted, you guys. <laughs> she ain't no housewife. And you'll understand that reference if you listen to her best case, worst case episode 213 and 214. <laughs> so next we introduce Tara Smith, the lead detective on the cold case we're going to be talking about today. And she's honestly like a serious badass. You guys Google her. 
She has over eight years of experience in law enforcement, and three years of that was being an investigator. So she knows some shit. She does. And then we have Francine Bardal, who introduced and developed the Bardal method and the MVAC. So what the MVAC is, it's basically like Cheryl described it in her episode. It's like a jewelry cleaner. And the best way to tell you guys how it works is within this sterile bottle, it holds a solution and a piece of evidence can be dropped into the bottle. And at that time, you activate this vacuum that's connected to it and it simultaneously flushes the fluid solution around in the bottle, sucking the liquid in and back out, trapping any DNA evidence like within this filter. So this method and technology has been revolutionary at extracting DNA evidence on on things that were impossible to pull from. So thanks to her, all of these cold cases are being solved by this amazing technology. I get super excited about like DNA and evidence and how they pull evidence from Mm -hmm. things. Like it just really gets me going. I love it. Love to read about that stuff. Totally. So now that we're familiar with our key players, let's talk about Tammy Renee Jackson. It was January 26, 1994, on the beautiful, whimsical Hutchinson Island that Tammy's body, still warm to the touch, was discovered by construction workers who had just arrived at their job site for the day, jam-packed, full day of work, and instead they came face-to-face with the mutilated body of the 17-year-old who no one even knew was missing at that time, let alone dead. Tammy Renee Jackson had grown up in Savannah, Georgia, which was not too far from where she was found that morning all alone. At least two sets of footprints were found in the immediate area, suggesting that whoever did this to Tammy had more than likely gained her trust prior to killing her. At least that's kind of the version that the footprints told. That was the story. But there were no drag marks present or patterns that had, you know, suggested a struggle had ensued there. So Hutchinson Island is a super remote area. You have to know where you're headed in order to end up where Tammy ended up. Like when the story broke about Tammy, it became known to a lot of people that not even a lot of locals knew where this area was. It was a 15 minute drive off of a main road. So think about like. Yeah, that's not just. It's yeah, it's not like right oh, out the just, highway. Exactly, like oh, just turn onto this you know little road and then drive like for you a would couple have minutes. To know where you it's have at. to know. So the this part of the island or Hutchinson Island was popular with teens who would go out there and take kegs and party because being out there they were virtually invisible. It was a place super accessible but not known to most natives. Hmm. So Tammy was a little sister to Stacy and had a twin, Tara. Tammy's parents, Roy and Kay, had grown up in the area too, now raising their family in Savannah. The entire Jackson family was well-loved in their home church and the community. Tammy had a love for dance, playing the trumpet, though she had kind of been going through a tough phase at this time, which I think is normal Normal. for most teenagers. She was stuck somewhere in between, you know, being that typical teen, feeling like an adult, kind of acting out, maybe, you know, rebelling against whatever was expected of her, which reminds me a lot of myself <laughs> at that age. Flashing back to Marie as a <laughs> Sorry, young one. Sorry, Mom. <laughs> Everyone says that Tammy was a big sweetheart, but feeling like she just really wanted to be independent. So much that it actually caused a rift in the family, and eventually Tammy was asked to leave the home. 
So at this time, Tammy had a boyfriend who was a few years older than her, and he had enlisted into the army. He had his own apartment in town, and Tammy felt comfortable, you know, moving in. So shortly after that, her boyfriend got notice that he was going to be sent over to Fort Benning for some training, and he was going to be there for a period of time. So not wanting, you know, to stay in the apartment alone, you know, she's young, she's scared. I wouldn't want to be alone. Mm -mm. So she was afraid of the dark too, which so am I, terrifies (laughs) me. So her boyfriend was feeling bad about having to leave her. So he suggested that Tammy go stay with his friends who had an apartment of their own and it wasn't that far away. He's like, I have these friends. They're a couple. They have a small baby. They said it was fine for you to stay with them, you know, just temporarily while he's away at training. Tammy was down with the idea and she moved in while he headed off to Fort Benning for training. So things were going as well as could be expected for three young adults and a baby in such a small space. Tammy was gracious for their hospitality, but felt like she needed a break from that environment, the baby and the crying. So, you know, like being so young and not a mother herself, the presence of a baby was probably amplified by her being immature and I don't mean that like in a negative way but she wasn't a mother and babies can be a lot sometimes even when they're your own (laughs) so on the evening of January 25th she felt like she just needed to get out of the apartment for a little bit she just needed a break and some alone time and that wasn't going to happen with the baby in the house so she takes a walk to a convenience store that wasn't far away from the apartment and we know she made it there We don't know much of what happened afterwards. Tammy was seen at the store by only one witness that has come forward or that they're, um, you know, letting the public know of. Yeah. And it was a local man who had worked for a cable company. He had been in the parking lot of the store when he said he spotted Tammy looking agitated while talking to two men in a car. Something he saw within Tammy... prompted him to approach her just to be sure that he was okay so when he did you know she looked at him and she responded that she was good but he felt something in his gut just was not right so you know he respected what she said and he drove away but he never forgot her face it's weird how people get that intuition like you know, like, I don't know you or anything about you, but I feel like something's off. Yeah. And in the episode of Best Case, Worst Case, one of the ladies, I don't know if it was Francie or Cheryl, they say like in that moment, you and I wouldn't be telling this story if Tammy would have answered that question differently. Yeah. Like, no, I'm not okay. And for a grown man to look at her and see her and be like, dude, something's Something's wrong. wrong. Most guys look and they're like, oh, fuck it. Like, she's fine. She's fine. She's not. Yeah. If something was wrong, she'd be running away. Yeah. So I wonder, I want to know more about what he's seen. Yeah. So he would later call into the Savannah Police Department when he saw Tammy's face flash across his TV screen with the grim, grim details of her horrific, brutal murder. Police were looking for anyone with information that would lead to Tammy's killer or killers. So he called into the PD, giving them all the details that he could remember, which was not, you know, much other than he had seen her talking to the two guys in the car, but he wasn't able to give identifying features of these men because he said he was just like so focused on Tammy and her behavior. 
He also couldn't remember the type or the color of the car, which is just, you know, that's sad. That could have been a lead or helped there. Yeah. Tammy had been stabbed, you guys, an unbelievable 130 times. And if that's not brutal enough, Tammy was hogtied, she was strangled, and then she was run over by a car multiple times. Too much. Way too. I mean, it gives me chills. It's way too much. Cheryl McCollin called it overkill. What word has a greater meaning than that? I have no idea. There was no evidence left at the scene aside from Tammy, rope, and an insane amount of blood, which all the tests confirmed that blood had belonged to Tammy. So 26 years later, Cheryl and Tara and everybody else invested in the case is hopeful that just one piece of evidence will hold that single skin cell or DNA that they need to properly identify the person or people that are responsible for this murder. They're focused right now on that rope that was used to tie up Tammy. Cheryl points out that a natural motion when handling a rope, like prior to using it, is you run your hands through it. And they're certain that, you know, the killer would have done the same thing before they tied Tammy up. So they hope using this Bartle method with the vacuum and solution, they are able to extract DNA and identify the killers. With the Bardall method at their fingertips, this is the closest they have ever been to finding the killer, even closer than when Tammy's body was found warm to the touch just shortly after she was killed, which is crazy to think that her being warm, like she was just murdered mm-hmm. when the construction people found her. Yeah. Like, Normally you hear, oh, you know, they were cold. They've been there for days. Like, no, she was freshly murdered. They just missed the killers. They just missed them. So Tammy didn't have any known enemies, and she had a ton of friends from high school. All of those friends are still fully invested in finding out what happened to her that day. Her boyfriend was never a suspect. He fully cooperated, and, you know, he was in the military. He has a very strong alibi. But what blows my mind is Tammy's story is so gruesome. She was so young. She was pretty popular and so loved at the time that she was killed. This has me fully invested. When I listened to the episode of Best Case, Worst Case, it was like maybe a month and a half or so ago. I have not been able to stop thinking about it. And 26 years ago, between then and now, this story has very little coverage very little when we were researching it i was shocked i was like wow no there is not a lot on the for it being like you said so horrific there's not a whole lot on. there's it. nothing so listen to the best case worst case episode they break it down they cheryl knows the case you know as well as tara and the rest of tammy's family and um yeah that was a main source for our podcast today so we need to share this episode. We need to share their episode. We literally like need to flood the internet yeah. to make up for lost time. Someone's out there. Somebody is Somebody out there. In addition to this case being cold and 26 years old, there are a lot of things that make this case, you know, harder to solve. There were no cell phones at this time, so they weren't able to track the phone, you know, like we do now with the tower pings. That's just out of the question. They didn't have that option. It, it was just out of the question. There was only one real witness to come forward, yet there had to be others that had seen Tammy at the store that night. She left her apartment around 7 p.m., so 
I mean, it's not like it was incredibly late. Right. But no one has come forward with any information. Like, what about the people that worked in the store? They what about... They could have very well been interviewed. We just don't know don't that. Don't know, yeah. But, like, what about surveillance? It might look like a grainy newspaper. Something's better <laughs> than nothing. Something. Yeah, I think it's crazy. I mean, it doesn't seem like the police are keeping anything really tight-lipped. But then again, how did this happen and no, but nobody has come forward except for that gentleman. Yeah. I just and thank God that, for him. I find that, I find that crazy actually. Anyways, we'd like to believe that whoever took Tammy out to this remote known, but yet unknown area was someone that was local. They were familiar with the area, but Tammy herself could have suggested that they go hang out there. Like, did she really want to be out of the house that bad that she would just hit up two strangers that she met to take her out to some remote location? What I, I want to know is I want to know more. I feel like they've kind of given all of the information to us, but what about the tire tracks? Yes, we were they, talking about that. The tire, the tread. The tread. Was anything like, were there any identifying features? Were they able to like pin it to a specific type of car? And then my second one is um, they have footprints that were all over the area where she was found. What size was that shoe? What type of shoe was it? Yeah, take a mold, narrow it down. I mean, I don't know. We need more information. (laughs) So Cheryl McCollum, she hosts these really cool wine and crime nights where she invites guests over to, you know, a specific location and they drink wine and they go over the murder box for this case. And I believe other cases talk about someone who is not going to let this story go. She's getting everybody on board to help solve this case, whether they're law enforcement or not. So her and I both are going to be sure that everybody (laughs) knows Tammy Jackson's name. And I know from the best case, worst case episode that Tammy's family does have a suspect in mind. um, But that's all that was said. I wonder what led them to think that. So what they say in the best case, worst case episode is um, they have this person in mind based on the way they were like acting or towards Tammy before she was murdered. Hmm. Um, But that's kind of, that's all they say about it. And then Tara, the lead detective also has a few suspects on her radar, which she's hoping to either identify or exclude using the MVAC testing. I pray they do because I want to know who did it too. Criminal profiler Jim Clemente believes that there were actually multiple killers involved in Tammy's murder. He points out that the three methods of murder were so extreme, like any one of these methods would have killed Tammy. He goes into the profile of Tammy's killers in a ton of detail. It's pretty intense. I mean, you guys got to go listen to that part of the episode in the podcast. That is a story of Tammy Renee Jackson. So tragic. If anybody has any information on the murder of Tammy Jackson, please contact the Savannah Crime Stoppers at 912-234-2020. You guys pick your favorite social media platform and share this episode in Tammy's name. While you're there, please be sure that you are following us at Those Murder Girls Podcast on all social media platforms. Thank you guys so much for joining us this week. 
I hope you all have a safe weekend. And we will see you back here next week for a brand new episode. Bye, Bye guys. guys.